Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from We Screenplay. If you just completed a draft of a script and are wondering what next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, with incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their careers, from emerging writers still finding their voice all the way to Oscar winners. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned, and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops offered by We Screenplay. Don't stay stuck. We Screenplay want to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from our friends at Arc Studio Pro. Arc Studio is the screenwriting software used to create incredible shows and movies, such as the acclaimed Netflix animation Arcane. It has a ton of features designed to unlock your creativity on the page, whether you're a seasoned industry professional or a first-time writer discovering your voice. Arc is all about minimum distraction and maximum ease of collaboration. There's an outlining whiteboard for mapping out your story, automatic draft management for keeping those scripts safe, and it also offers real-time collaboration similar to Google Docs, making it the easiest way to run a professional writer's room or just to write that great idea for a script that you have with a friend. Try it today. Head to arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart, where you can get $30 off a pro account by using the code friends at checkout. Click the link in today's show notes to take your screenwriting to the next level. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Script Apart. My name's Al Horner, and this is a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. If you're tuning in for the first time, here's how it goes down. Each episode, a brilliant screenwriter revisits their first draft of what became a beloved movie or series. On the show today, we have a guest who, simply put, just knows great comedy. As a director, he's responsible for beloved movies like Bridesmaids, Ghostbusters, and The Heat, not to mention memorable episodes of TV shows that I love, including Arrested Development, Parks and Rec, 30 Rock, and The Office. When it comes to writing, typically, he more often than not passes the baton to brilliant collaborators, writers like Annie Mumolo, Kristen Wiig, and Katie Dippold bringing their scripts to life from his director's chair. On the occasions, however, that he does write his own screenplays, it's without fail an absolute laugh riot, full of warmth, affection, inclusivity, and infectious positivity. Yes, today on Script Apart, it's the talented and very charming Paul Feig. Let me take you guys back a couple of decades in Paul's career for a second. In the late 90s, having starred as an actor in the TV show Sabrina the Teenage Witch, before deciding to move more behind the camera, Paul created Freaks and Geeks, a sitcom of sorts following the exploits of a band of hilarious high school misfits. The actors portraying those misfits would of course go on to dominate American comedy for decades to come. We're talking about James Franco, Seth Rogen, Linda Cardellini, Jason Segal, they all got their breaks on the show, which ran for just one season in 1999. Its legacy has lived on though, as has Paul's reputation as a storyteller who aspires to bring people together in the movies and shows that he creates. In the conversation you're about to hear, we break down the show's brilliant pilot, including the scene that he believes got the show cancelled, the still raw memories from his own high school experience that drive its plot, 
and the bleak existential crisis that the show's lead, Lindsay, is suffering as the series gets underway. That is not all though. When we were setting up this episode over email, Paul had the great idea of also touching on Spy, his fantastic 2016 espionage comedy starring Melissa McCarthy. That way we were able to get a really great sense of how writing comedy for TV back in the 90s differs from writing comedy for the big screen today. It's a fascinating chat in which Paul shares along the way the George Bernard Shaw quote that inspires the spirit of kindness in his work. We also talk about the benefits of writing a Bible for your characters, consisting of every intimate detail of their lives, his relationship with Judd Apatow, who's been integral to a number of Paul's projects, and the time that Britney Spears was touted to appear on Freaks and Geeks. This was a fun one to record that should hopefully bring some peace to my poor mum at long last, 10 years after a terrible, terrible incident. You'll hear what I mean. Thank you to Paul so much for taking the time out of his busy schedule working on his new movie, The School for Good and Evil, to chat with me. And thank you as ever to our Patreon supporters for helping make this episode possible. Head to patreon.com forward slash script apart if you'd like to join that community and receive ad-free episodes, bonus content, you know, all that good stuff. One tiny thing to flag before we jump in, I am currently in the US with some writing projects and have been traveling around, making recording a tiny bit tricky. If I sound different in this episode at all, that's the reason why. It is the last time we'll have an issue with this as we're all sorted now in terms of microphones and a reliable spot for me to record. Thank you for bearing with us while we figured that out. Okay, I'm going to stop talking. Let's get underway, shall we? This is the wonderful Paul Feig discussing the first draft secrets of Freaks and Geeks with a tiny bit of spy thrown in for good measure. Thank you so much for tuning in. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. So I'm reaching you in London today. Yeah, you've been there for a while, right? While, while making The School for Good and Evil. Yeah, yeah. I've actually, I've actually made my last two movies here. Also the movie Last Christmas that I did. Basically, I've been here for four years, except for eight months during the uh, pandemic. I was back in LA, but um, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a downright Londoner right now. So uh, <laughs> I love it. I, I love it. my My mom's side of the family was British and my wife and I bonded over 30 years ago over our love of London. We always want to live here. So now, you know, when you get to work here, you got to live here. So it's, it's pretty great. And, and being here for so long, has any London slang or vocab kind of snuck its way into your speech? I mean, I've been in I've been in L.A. for a while and I'm finding little Californianisms are kind of creeping into my speech. Yeah, well, you, you you pick up on them just because you get tired of people going like making fun of you for saying a thing a different way. <laughs> you know, so it's slowly I don't know, it's slowly coming in. I said something was sorted the other day and, and you know, like, oh, you know, that that's my evening sorted. And somebody's like, oh, you've been there for a while. I was like, oh, I didn't even realize like you're around it. You don't realize certain things. Yeah, but other things are just simply for clarity, you know. <laughs> so a lorry is a truck, but my wife is lorry, so my wife is not a truck, and she spells it different. So I'm slowly getting it down. Well, yeah, I'm so excited to dive into your your relationship with storytelling and the screenwriter side of your craft today, Paul. We're going to talk about freaks and geeks. We're also going to touch on Spy, both the stories of yours that I absolutely adore. Before we begin, though. I was wondering if I could if I could share a story a story about a movie of yours, Paul, that has caused a lot of uh, family tension. A lot of it's been a very contentious oh, issue for the last oh. decade or so. Oh, fantastic! Uh, basically, like my mum and dad were both uh, secondary school teachers before they retired a few years ago, <laughs> and on the last day of school, one day about a decade ago, my mum decided that she was going to 
show her students a movie. I, I think they're around 13 or 14. It was some sort of oh. reward for, <laughs> yeah, getting through, getting through exams or whatever. And she asked me, what's a fun movie that I could show the kids? And I answered Bridesmaids, obviously. Oh, no. Oh, my yeah, God. Okay, I know, well. I know, I know. I well, take no responsibility in this. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, basically, like, obviously that movie opens with John Hamm and Kristen Wiig having sex and my mom yes. puts the movie on in the classroom uh, she realizes kind of oh god what have I done what am I showing these children Instinctly, what has my son gets, done to me <laughs> yeah exactly she gets up to kind of like uh instinctively like cover the screen with her body shielding the kids from the content but of course it's being shown on a projector so now John Hamm and Kristen are just on her back and yeah she has not yet forgiven me so um yeah it, it comes up like a minimum of once a week and rightfully so Al you're what, what kind of monster are you I know I know I mean if you could uh, deliver a message live on air to my mom Mrs Horner I think it would go a long way to allowing us to to heal and yes. recover from that moment uh, Mrs. Horner, he had no idea what he was doing. Uh, he likes comedy. Uh, you don't. He, you get so far into the movie, you forget that it opens like that. But there's, right? there's still some. We dropped the c word in that. So, so um, no, I, I can't defend your son. He, he did a terrible thing. <laughs> you could have shown them. Uh, I am David, a movie I that know. I made. There's wonderful uh, unaccompanied minors. Um, <laughs> You went right to bridesmaids. Well done, sir. Yeah. I mean, in fairness, I think those kids, it was the best, best day of their school lives. <laughs> I was going to say, exactly. Score for them. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so Paul, let's dive in. I'll start off with a simple question. Um, mm. Over the course of your career, you've directed a lot of movies and shows. Your writing credits, though, are kind of a, a lot more scattered. Mm. All the projects that you have written, though, from, from interviews I've listened in on, they seem to be kind of super close to your heart. What is your relationship with writing? Do you enjoy that process? And, and what determines the films and series that you decide to sit down and pen? Yeah, it's, um, you know, for everything I'm going to write, I mean, it, it's weird. Like, it start, it, it's usually an original idea, but then, like, the first, you know, well, the first movie I made, which nobody's ever seen, is called Life Sold Separately, which I made for $35,000, and it's still sitting in my house. Um, but, you know, that was something I wrote because... I, for twofold i wanted to make a movie i had some money because i was on this show that's sabrina the teenage witch and i had a little bit of money stored and wanted to you know write direct and star in a movie so i was like okay what can i do for thirty thousand dollars at the time which you had to do on 16 millimeter and so i wrote a movie uh, that movie that took place in a field four characters one day they all show up separately in this middle of this field having gotten information you know divinely that there was a ufo was going to show up and take them all away um but but it was inspired by i had a lot had a lot of friends had committed suicide in the in the in the years before that and it was kind of a little allegory about people wanting to escape the earth and all that and how you know how you kind of get them over that um you know so that was something close to my heart but i always like to tell a story through a different, um, you know, not medium, but through a different way, you know, just to tell it, like, I don't want to do a story about like, okay, trying to get people to not commit suicide. So I was like, okay, what's an allegory? Okay. UFOs. I was in UFOs and all that and, and all that. So, you know, finding ways to tell stories that mean something to you. And then, you know, then I did a, a wrote, did an adaptation of a book called I am David, which, 
on its, you know, on its, <laughs> on its front look, does not look at like anything from my life. It's about a kid who grows up in a communist labor camp and has to work his way across Europe to find his mother. But my mom had just died like, a, you know, a few months before I got sent that book. And so I really related to it in that way. Cause another was a kind of an allegory of trying to, you know, find somebody you've lost, um, you know, and then going forward from that. Yeah. It, it's really, you know, spy I mean, we'll get into it you know, down the line, but that's kind of a weirdly personal story about me going out on my own to try to make a movie. And I'd worked with Judd so much and it was nervous. Like, can I do it on my own, you know, and getting over, like, you know, having worked with, with, you know, a, a strong personality who, you know, who's a friend who you really like, but you kind of go like, am I you know, tied to that person? Am I not as good without that person? And so I just, but then I put that through a spy story because I wanted to write my own kind of James Bond movie, but I knew that, you know, the Broccoli's weren't going to hire me to direct the Bond movie. So I was like, well, no, I like working with, you know, great women. So I'll, I'll write a female, my version of a female James Bond and make it fun, but make it real. And so, you know, so it's really that. And then you know, but then like the school for good and evil that I'm just finishing now, I've got co-writing credit on that because I did, you know, two and a half years worth of rewrites on it. Um, and that became very personal to me just because I, again, it, it was hitting the other thing I love of, of uh, female friendship, but also about finding your place in the world and, you know, just going into a new situation and, and just bring, I, if I can see myself in, in a story and relate it to things I've gone through, then I get really into it. It's when I try to go, here's what I always say. You gotta, you have to build a story, whatever you're gonna do from emotion and character. And the tendency for a lot of people, myself included, is to build it from events and you know, to go like, oh, or situations. Oh, it's about this, this story, this happens. Aliens come down and do this, or you know, there, there's a terrorist, or whatever it is. And I find it's a, it's a terrible way to to start because then you don't have any investment other than it's stuff you've seen or stuff you're interested in, but you don't have any emotional connection to it. And then you start to drill in like, oh, well, now I'll put this character in that kind of relates to it. I find figure out the emotion you're trying to tell, the, the issue you've gone through, the thing that's important to you and the character you want to tell it through and then go, what's the best forum for that? to tell this story, what will illustrate this story the best allegorically, you know, and just in just in a, in a great way to tell a story that's not just telling the, you know, you're not just preaching about something that you're, you know, is important to you. And and so I, I guess that's kind of how I, I, I find things, um, you know, so again, I don't want to, you know, we're, I know we're going to talk about spy, but just to jump to that, you know, I, I it started kind of going that like, I want to make a movie. Like I want to make a spy movie, like a James Bond movie, but then immediately going like, okay, what's my connection to that? Oh, if it's about somebody who is really good at what they do, but they're not sure if they're good without the person that they normally do it with. And how do you get, how do that, that, how does that first person find their uh, confidence? You know, and so then it then, so it piggybacked off of that. The, the the macro idea was there, but even before I got into the nuts and bolts of it, it's like, okay, what is the character? Because then that will affect the events and how that person is reacting in those events and how that drives it forward. When you're working from scripts by other screenwriters, do you need that same kind of personal connection? Do you need to see something that you can relate to in those scripts or or what defines the movies that you make from other other screenwriters? Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of the exact same thing, really. It's, it's you know, because I read a ton of scripts. We get sent a ton of scripts and, and, and it's 
you know, I would say it's like, it's like basically you're, you're, you're meeting your spouse. You're trying to find a spouse uh, because as we know when you work on, if you're working on a movie or something, that is 24 hours a day, seven days a week for a oh, year, yeah. two years. The one I just finished has been two and a half years. Um, so you really have to feel something in there that you connect to. So it's kind of exactly the same thing. And then everything I do, I do a lot of rewrites on and, you know, some I take credit for and some I don't, depending on how much I've done and, and how good the script was when it came to me, you know, because look, as directors, you know, we're always, you know, fixing stuff or, or making it work for us. And that doesn't always qualify you as a screenwriter you know, versus ones you go like, oh, it's great, but I got to do a lot of work because the, the bones are there, but we really got to tear it apart and all that. Then, you know, then you go like, okay, maybe I, you know, should get a little more credit for this. Yeah, there's, there's like an authorship and a, and a writing process in directing too. Like you've been handed a script, but as director, you're also finding the material that works on set and again in the edit, right? Yeah, where I mean, we're, I'm literally writing all the way through, through post because we're writing ADR and writing, you know, sometimes we have to do reshoots or whatever, you know, either writing that or can bring another writer on to write with. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it's it's funny. Uh, years ago, when a, somebody, a, a DP I was working with, we were talking about some famous movie star who had gotten their chance to direct and, you know, he had shot it for them. And he said, well, how'd it go? And said, well, it wasn't fair because, you know, she really got struck, stuck with a bad script. And it's like, no, if you're a director, you don't get stuck with a bad script. You, you may take on a bad script, but then it's up to you to make that <laughs> script good, either through an, you know, bringing on another writer, working with the screenwriter, doing it yourself. But, you know, nobody in movies gets stuck with a bad script. TV directing, sure, you can get stuck with a bad script because you only have so much control. But that, that's the biggest thing is, you know, as a director, you have to be a storyteller. You have to be a writer or think like a writer or know how to work with writers. So when, when you look back at your, your filmography, you know, both, both the projects you've written yourself and the scripts that you've, you've picked up and directed, like, mm -hmm. what would you say is the common thread? Like, to me, there's, there's a warmth in them. There's an inclusiveness that runs through them all, an underdog spirit in these films. Like often mm -hmm. your characters are, are a little bit down on their luck and, and they mm -hmm. discover who they are instead of who they think they should be in your storytelling. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, what are the kind of common threads for you? How do you how do you define your storytelling style? Well, you honestly summed it up <laughs> quite well there. <laughs> I have to say it's really always about an underdog. I always relate to the underdog. And it is somebody who doesn't know their place in the world, who doesn't have their confidence and uh, is trying to figure out kind of, you know, who they are, what they can do if what they want is really what they want and then come out the other side, you know, feeling as, as realized as one can realistically be in, in the real world. But, you know, one of the other things is I just, Oh, everything I do has to be good natured, even though it can get dark and, you know, I mean, the simple favor gets really dark, yeah. but at the end of the day, I think it's kind of good natured in that the end message isn't you can't win life is terrible people suck you know it's more like okay you come up against <laughs> tough situations and tough people in those situations and i always tell all you know but but you can get but you can you can win but i also try to make sure that all my villains are understandable um or get some sort of redemption at the end you know again going back to to the to spy you know i mean rose Byrne does a lot of terrible things in it but <laughs> but the fact that they have this little thing between them at the end of like yeah, you know the fuck yeah. you fuck you and they kind of smile at each other you go okay there's a mutual respect that i think is good-natured because you know i i don't like 
movies where the villain has to get their head chopped off at the end. You know, I'd rather find some way to not necessarily redeem them, but just go like, all right, they had a reason why they did this terrible thing. You know, it always goes back. You read any interview with me, I say this ad nauseum, but everything in my career, my writing career has gone off of this one thing I read in, in a, um, in a uh, George Bernard Shaw, at the end of his plays, he would have all these little maxims and stuff. And one was all men mean well. And I was like, that's the key to writing, because no matter if you're writing the villain, whoever you're writing, they have a good reason for why they're doing what they do. And to them, it means well, even if it's something horrendous, you know, they to them, they're not just going, I'm just going to create havoc. If they are saying I'm just going to create havoc, they have a reason why they want to create havoc. And to them, it's like because I'm going to try to fix the world through chaos, whatever it is, you know, but I, I just don't like sort of the mustache twirling sort of I'm just evil villain because i don't buy that character you know i think the darkest most fucked up person in the world has an inner logic that tells them i have to do this because this um you know and so that's i always want to kind of infuse that into every character i write whether they're good or bad yeah and those things you just described of of creating something good natured that engenders empathy like those are tenants of like films that seem to kind of provide like a communal experience the way that like, I don't know, like old Steve Martin movies would yeah. kind of have this across the board appeal and that sense of that good natured sort of mm-hmm. uh, sense of empathy for all the characters, yeah. including the antagonist. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, that's something that kind of uh, brings all brings people from all walks of life together. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've sat in cinemas in your movies and uh, it has been just such a spread of people. Can you tell me about where that desire to, to do something that had a kind of universal appeal began for you? Were there particular movie going experiences? Yeah, I mean, I, I've just always <clears throat> been a people pleaser. And my only goal has really been to kind of make people happy. I mean, that's why I went to comedy because I could entertain people and hopefully make them happy. You know, as it, you know, if you go psychologically and do it, I think it's because you want people to like you, you know, and so you're just <laughs> trying to, you don't want to be the, the squeaky wheel, but I also, uh, or, you know, the irritants, but at the same time, I also had enough bullies and, and just stuff in my life that I was like, I don't ever want to make anybody feel the way that people make me feel when they make me feel bad. You know, I just don't like that. It's like, and then I got from my mom, I think, because she was very much, she liked very positive, happy stuff. She, I remember she would just so upset it, you know, there was a time when like talk shows were things like uh, we had a show in the U.S. called Phil Don, the Phil Donahue show, which was like a yeah. daytime show. You know, we'd have a, you know, some people on and they would talk. And even if they didn't disagree, if they didn't agree, it was all very civil and, and, and you know, thoughtful. And then I remember when the Jerry Springer show, show first started, my mother was so upset and she and I don't like this stuff either. She goes like it just brings the whole tone of the country, down, you know, with people screaming and yelling and all that stuff. And I agree. And I honestly feel like that those kind of things have gotten us to the political climate that we're in now where we're just everybody's just shouting everybody down. So, you know, I, for me, it was just, I don't, you know, I'm a Hollywood filmmaker. I loved Hollywood movies, you know, you know, I'd watch singing in the rain with my mom. We just have the greatest time and be happy at the end. And I go like, I want to do that. When I went to film school, I would see, you know, hardcore dramas and these indie films that were also bleak and everything. And I really appreciated them for their artistry, but I was like, I don't, that's not the message I want to send into the world. You know, I, I also, I just can't physically work on something for a year that every day is like getting punched in the face. You know, it's, I want to have fun and I want to make sure people have fun, you know, and then also 
making, you know, may have having made the decision early on, having made a independent film and it took so much time and so much work. And then I couldn't get it out anywhere coming out of that situation saying, well, I always hear that studio movies are hard because you get all these micromanagement people all over you, but I bet I'm going to work just as hard on that. And at least I know it's going to come out and it's going to have marketing, you know? So I made that decision early on of like, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to, I'm going to take the slings and arrows that I have to, to make sure that what I do gets seen. Um, you know, and, and so when you do that, obviously then Hollywood wants happy endings, quote unquote, but so do I, I, I just think that's, I, my job is to entertain. And if I can make you think about anything and I can teach you anything as I'm entertaining you, that's great. But my first goal is to entertain you. Another kind of facet of your writing that, that seems to come up often is often these the, the sort of characters you write are supremely tailored to the actors that are going to appear in those parts. Like mm. across freaks and geeks, you, mm. you seem to really zero in on the characteristics of all those actors who, of course, would go on to be major stars. And you wrote mm. to their com comic strengths, mm. projects like Ghostbusters and Spy, especially, you know, which mm. obviously you wrote for Melissa McCarthy. Yeah. They they have that feel too. Like so, uh, yeah. I'd be curious to hear, Paul. Like, what your what your process is for writing specifically for actors who are going to be delivering your material. Like, is there a particular trick? Do you insist on hanging out before you you get to the sort of get to get to screenwriting, or how does it yeah. work? I mean, it varies from project to project. <clears throat> you know, Greeks and Geeks. I wrote as a spec script um, it, when I was an actor still, and I had no writing career, even though I was writing, but nobody cared, <laughs> uh, had a, you know, drawer full of scripts as a lot of us do that nobody even you know wanted to read. Um, but that I was so inspired by, well, the, the, the initial inspiration for that, I'm getting away from your question, but I will come back to it. I swear. Uh, was my friend um, uh, uh, Matt Reeves had just uh, created Felicity with JJ Abrams. And so I'd been trying to get movies made and all this stuff. And then when I watched the pilot for that, I was like, oh, one hour drama. That's that's kind of a way to do movies, but also not, you know, uh, it, it felt weirdly more accessible to me because movies just you know, it was so impossible to get into that. So I wrote Freaks and Geeks because I'd always had this idea of writing a high school show that was honest about the people that I knew in high school because I never yeah. saw us represented on the screen. It was either nerds with tape on their glasses, which we didn't know anybody like that, you know, <laughs> or all the cool kids. And I, I didn't, you know, we knew them, but we didn't have anything to do with them. They weren't that cool, really. Um, not like the kids on TV who were all, you know, models and having all these you know, weird sexual problems and relationship problems. It's like, who the hell, you know, has the confidence in <laughs> high school to have that. So, you know, so I wanted to make it about the burnouts that I knew and all my nerdy friends uh and so wrote it but i based a lot of the characters on people that i knew um or archetypes of people that i knew or combinations of people that i knew so they were very personal characters to me that were three-dimensional because they came from real people and then we went into cast it was a lot of like really trying to find people who fit that mold, but at the same time, throwing the door open wide to have everybody in that age group who was great come in, even if they weren't like the characters were written. And, you know, I credit Alison Jones, the greatest casting director for comedy of all time, who, you know, just brought in all these, you know, kids who either had been in stuff, had never been in stuff. She'd just seen in a school play. I mean, everybody came in and, 
you know, there was a bunch that were exactly like what I wrote. I mean, when James Franco walked in, he he looks like the guy I wrote the part about, you know, from 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 in the past. And so it's just like, oh, my God, it's him. Um, Linda Cardellini. That was the only character I vented out, out of whole cloth um, because I I just what I'm an only child. I was an only child and I always wanted an older sister. And so I would always kind of in my head dream up what my ideal older sister would be. And it was somebody who looked exactly like Linda Cardellini. And then when I was in uh, when I was on tour with my my infamous uh, Life Sold Separately movie on this college tour, I was in a in a town in Pennsylvania and saw these this group of kind of burnout girls. And there was one girl kind of tagging along behind smoking a cigarette who looked very unnatural doing it. And I was like, Oh, that girl's trying to be cool. Like those kids. And so I was like, Oh, that's, that should be the girl who's really smart, but she's kind of not happy with her life and is trying to switch groups. And that's how I invented the character of Lindsay, but had this image in my head of what exactly what she would look like. So when Linda Cardellini walked in, she looked exactly like the person who was in my head. So that was weird, you know? Uh, um, so she kind of slipped into it, but then Jason Siegel came in, who was nothing like the, the person that I wrote the, the part for. He's a big, tall, handsome guy. The guy I wrote it for was this stumpy, weird dude in our neighborhood. Um, and I was like, God, he's great, but he's not right. And Judd was the one who said, you know what? If he's great, don't let him go. Let's let's, you know, adjust the character for him. And that's where I learned a really valuable lesson. And I and I credit Judd for that of like, if somebody's great, don't let him walk out of the room. It's it's easier for you to adjust the part for somebody who's going to make your thing great versus yeah. like, Oh, well let, let him go. And let's find somebody who, who physically matches what I want. So that's kind of where I learned how to do that. And then once we had the kids, kids, they weren't kids, but you know, younger, younger than me. Um, <laughs> then you, then we started, then you started getting inspired by them and go like, Oh, Oh, I want to write to that because this is their strength. And that comes from just observing them. I made sure to like have lunch with each one of them separately. So I kind of get to know them, um, you know, and then telling them what, about what, you know, the characters that they were based on. And so it kind of organically grew. And then we just got inspired once we went to series by them, just the way they were interacting on the set, the way we got to know their personalities from, from the set. And we started changing upcoming scripts and upcoming storylines to fit what we were learning. So it was a long-winded say, way of saying that, you know, we, we were constantly adjusting um, and, and, go, and being influenced and taking the influence. Um, and I think that's where a lot of showrunners, a lot of writers in general, but showrunners and TV tend to fall down because, or lately they did in the past. I think people are, are much more open and smart about this now, but it yeah. used to be like, you know, when I was an actor, I wanted to change one word in a line, you know, one, one, yeah. Yeah. One word in, in a line of dialogue like in a sitcom and they're like, well, you have to take a meeting with the showrunner and he's in his office. He doesn't come down. It's like, really? I just want to change, but to, and, and, you know, and so that's why I have in my office, I have two things in my office that I always have. One is a model of the Titanic to remind myself that no matter how great everything seems, it could still go down. And the other is a bust of Shakespeare to remind myself and everybody I work with that we're not Shakespeare. And so we can change stuff. We can make it better. We can rewrite, you know, so let's not act like it's some holy writ that can't be touched. Um, you know, so, so yeah, so you just gotta, you gotta be open to it, you know, and then, then just to, to you know, finish out on this, on this, on your question, you know, as I go along now, I like to write, 
towards people. Here's the irony, though. Uh, Spy was not written for um, for Melissa. It was actually written with somebody else in mind because I didn't think really? Melissa was available. Yeah. But then she read it and was like, "Ooh, I would like to play this. And honestly, I didn't have to change it that much because the character was really kind of tapped into who um, Melissa really is in real life. And that's why I kind of liked that she was going to do it because she'd been playing, playing these very brash characters, you know, bridesmaids in the heat. But I knew her as this really sweet person who sometimes had to summon up that tiger inside of her. And so that's why I kind of just fit for her to be this meek, you know, office worker who's super smart, who then has to go out and pretend, you know, to be, be mean and, and, and tough. <laughs> You mentioned um, Life Sold separately there. Like, you know, you, you've previously described how when you when you wrote Freaks and Geeks, every, in your words, everything had hit the rocks. I was at my yeah. lowest point. Was, was that really the case, Paul? Like, can, can you yeah. unpack that for me, how, how bad things were? Yeah, it was bad. It was because um, I, you know, I, I was a stand-up comedian. I went to film school um, at USC, came out of that, got a job as an intern uh, reading scripts for um, Michael Phillips, the producer, Michael Phillips. And then I turned that into a job uh, after I officially graduated. It was an internship first. And then, but then I got bored by doing that because I just didn't like reading scripts, although I learned a lot from reading scripts, but it just, I, I didn't want to be an office person. Um, and so when into stand-up comedy, which I had started doing when I was 15 back in Detroit, but then kept going. So I had this career for five years as a stand-up. Then I parlayed that into being an actor for 15 years, but it was always wanting to make movies. Um, and that's what I went to film school for. I, I had this illusion that I was going to write, direct, and star in my own movies. That's why Life Sold Separately, I'm actually the star of it too, which is one yeah. of the reasons why it's not out there. Um, <laughs> but so did that and had this pretty successful career as a, as a, as a uh, character actor, but then it was just like, I got to do this. I got to do this. So I took the money when I was on Sabrina's the teenage witch that I'd made, saved up the whole year, put it into life sold separately. So basically, you know, bankrupted my savings. And then they didn't bring me back to the show for the second season. They basically wrote me out of the show. So suddenly I had no money, immediately had no money because um, I'd spent it all in this, this movie and I couldn't get the movie into any film festivals. I mean, for a year trying to get it into film festivals, nobody would take it. It was too small. It was just, you know, whatever, not good enough. Um, and so I had no money and my wife was working, but her job wasn't making enough. And it was like, I, I, I gotta get a job. Like I gotta, you know, I gotta kind of maybe give up this dream and get like a real job. Um, but then I, right at the end of that, I got this call from this thing, Flix tour, which wanted to send me out on this, you know, this, you know, traveling tour around to colleges where I would show the movie, which was great because you got to watch your movie in real time with people and get feedback. It was like having, you know, a bunch of test screenings basically. Um, but then I was, when I was out of the road, I wrote freaks and geeks. So it was literally right when I was about like, okay, I'm going to, I have to get out of the business that, that you know, and Judd and then NBC bought the, bought the pilot and um, then everything changed. Hey, this is Al just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, ScreenCraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine. 
featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out ScreenCraft today. Visit ScreenCraft.org or click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from Arc Studio Pro. Screenwriting to me is all about immersion. I want to stay immersed in that dreamy, fantasy-like state while I weave my story and craft my characters. I don't want to be distracted by anything and I certainly don't want to be thinking about text formatting. Arc Studio Pro understands that. It's so intuitive, it has a minimal and dare I say beautiful interface that allows me to stay completely focused on the story I'm trying to tell. To take your screenwriting to the next level, visit arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart where you can either download a free version or get $30 off a pro account to unlock its full host of amazing features. Use the code FRIENDS at checkout to get that discount. That's arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Were there frustrations from from your experience with the industry at that point that you were pouring into Freaks and Geeks or or where did sort of, because, you know, it's such an outsider show. The characters are by definition outsiders. Mm. Was was there anything from your life at that point that was feeding into either the feel or tone of of Freaks and Geeks? Well, I think as an actor, I was having a hard time getting jobs. What happened when I was in my 20s, everybody was casting people in their 30s. And so the minute I slipped into my thirties, everybody started casting people in their twenties. And so it was this weird thing where the industry, you can just literally get bypassed by the industry. And so it was that frustration of like, Oh my God, I can do all this stuff. I, you know, I, I was very confident with what I could do. Um, and it's like, I'm not being allowed to do what I do. And they're just hiring handsome people for this and good looking. That was when they were really hiring just all really beautiful people for stuff. Uh, you know, cause TV was in that place. Um, and so I think of my frustration with that and then watching shows that were supposed to appeal to like my past of like when I was in high school and how hard it was. And it just it's, it's, they were all soap operas, you know, with all these beautiful people having, you know, hookups and the problems of relationships. I'm just like and it just got made me so mad after a while <laughs> that I was just like, I want to fucking I'm going to do a show about the people I knew and the experience that I had because I talked to other people and they didn't have the experience that these people are having in these fantasy shows either. And so it really came from that. But I also didn't know enough about the um, creative side of the business. I knew enough about the acting side, but I had no idea what went on in the offices or in the meetings, you know, after we leave the set or after an audition. So I just kind of came storming in, wrote this, you know, wrote this thing on spec. Judd read it. He loved it. Then he sent it off to, to, you know, and then DreamWorks bought it and then they sent it to NBC and they loved it. They wanted to do it. So suddenly my in my, you know, my entrance to the industry was really easy and I wasn't so dumb that I didn't realize it was like kind of a, you know, special thing that happened. But at the same time, I still came in with that thing that a lot of young writers that I work with and see have, which is that brash, like, I'm going to do this and I know this and don't tell me blah, blah, blah. And I kind of respect that because I, if I knew what I know now, I probably wouldn't have written freaks and geeks, you know, or yeah. tried to sell it just because I would have gone, Oh, it's, it's too small or too that. I mean, maybe today, cause the, the, the landscape has changed, but back then it, a show like that, you know, had no place on TV. You had to do a sitcom or you had to do an hour long procedural, 
you know, the, the only thing with any kind of a similar tone to that was Ally McBeal, you know, which was kind of comedy, but it was an hour. Um, but no, so, so I, I really think that that kind of just, I don't know the industry I'm going to come blasting in. And unfortunately Judd was an old friend who could at least pull me aside sometimes and go like, look, you got to be cool here. You can't say <laughs> no to this, you know, rewrite, let's rewrite this, you know, and, but, but then he also didn't crush my spirit of like, we can do this. Cause I really went, this show is going to be the, the biggest show of all time because who wouldn't want to relive the most uncomfortable, painful moments of their childhood and laugh at them? And turned out nobody wanted to, at least back then. So, uh, and we, you know, we were the lowest rated show on NBC and then got canceled. But um, but we never compromised anything. So that was I'm most proud of. Yeah, it's interesting that the sort of high school cliches that you wanted to rebel against, that sort of show that did dominate the airwaves in terms of like, depictions of of the school experience. The first scene, even in the early draft that I've read, the pilot starts with dropping in on these characters, like the cheerleader and the jock, yeah. and showing us the story that we've been fed a million times. And yeah. then the camera sort of pans beneath the bleachers and we we kind of get to meet these other characters. Mm. One, one thing that did change on that journey though, is um, in, in the early draft I've, I've read, Paul, you know, you sort of, begin the, the first of the the freaks and geeks that we meet is is Lindsay she talks about the existential kind of crisis that she's in that's um that's still in the episode the pilot episode that aired but is, is a bit more pronounced in the draft so she had this experience where her grand died she was with her as she was dying and and she asked she asked her can you see can you see a light can you see God and this poor woman just said no it's just darkness it's just emptiness mm-hmm that's such a dark and existential thing to have have at the heart of a of a of a TV comedy. Can you tell me yeah. about sort of where that came from and and yeah, sort of the bravery and boldness of of basing a show around it? Yeah, I mean that was basically that was the mental place I was in at the time because I was in my mid thirties. I had been brought up very religiously um, by my parents. I had questioned it, you know, because I wasn't really into science, but at the same time I was hanging on to it, you know, the belief in God and all this stuff that could get me through the hardest times, you know, like, okay, well, there's a plan, blah, 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 you know, whatever, however you want to be religious about that. And, but it was right around in my early thirties, I just went, I'm cutting bait because it just, there was enough stuff in the world that made me go like, I can't, I can't fact, I can't make these two things mesh. I can't make science and all this stuff mesh with this religious point of view. So I basically, you know, became an atheist and it was this weird like year two years of like free floating like oh my god you know if you think something's in control and you suddenly pull the rug out from that and say like i think nothing's really in control except myself and you know you only have so much control as a person um that i was having all this angst about it and when i wanted you know i when writing this the character of Lindsay, who is the only character that didn't really exist in my life I knew I wanted her to be really smart and mature. And so I went, well, okay. I'd always read that like, you know, 16 year old girls are tend to be the same maturity level as guys in their thirties. And so it was like, okay, well, this is perfect. Then I'm just going to make her the mouthpiece for all the angst that I'm going through right now in my thirties and kind of grafted onto Lindsay. And so that's really where that came from. I mean, honestly, that speech she gives is kind of based on all the stuff I'd been going through and, and angsting about. And I, you know, was going like, well, what would be, what would be the thing that spurs her to want to make this seismic change in her life? Cause I have a lot of friends when I was growing up who were like my best friends 
you know, like let's say in junior high, you know, in, in seventh grade and you do everything together. You're such nerds together. And then over the summer you'd lose touch and you'd come back and they would be completely different people. Like they would be one, one friend who was such a nerd came back as a, the darkest burnout, like freak I've ever seen. He was like scary. He would just stalk around the school and just like, I used to have sleepovers on your floor and stuff, you know, like what a, we used to talk about cartoons, you know? And so I, I always got fascinated by what happens when people just go through something when they get away from their, their group. Um, you know, and I think that just kind of played into like, what did Lindsay go through? And it's, you know, but I, I needed to pin it on something more than I didn't want to be like drug. Most of those kids just got into drugs. <laughs> that's, you know, that's what's tended to sadly change them. So it's like, I need, she's smart. She needs to have some kind of weird existential crisis. And so that's really what it was. And what else? Because I know you wrote like one of your one of your early steps was to um, write a, write a Bible. I mean, Judd has described you having hundreds of pages of character yeah. descriptions, write down yeah. to all of their favorite songs and stuff. Yeah. Like, w- what were some of the early ideas that you kind of kicked around that that evolved? So they they didn't make the final show, but for a moment they were kind of being entertained as possible avenues for for these characters. Um, I mean, we had we I had like you said, I had this Bible that I, I really saw the whole thing going forward, but it changed so quickly because of the, the you know, the cast that we had. And, and, and as the characters came to life, you started going like, Oh, I want to subvert that thing. Like, Oh, you think Ken is from some, you know, weird, poor family. Let's actually make him from a really rich family, you know, and surprise everybody with that. And, you know, those kind of things. And then there'd be, you know, certain relationships on the set that you go like, Oh, let's carry that over, you know, for, for a little time, uh, um, uh, James Franco and Linda Cardellini weren't getting along. So it's like, Oh, let's build that into, you know, the, the episode where, you know, he causes the car accident and stuff. Um, you know, so, I mean, the only thing I can really remember that I really changed was actually in the original pilot, which was that um, there was a character of the uh, the auto shop teacher who was I, I wanted the, the the freaks to have like a leader, um, you know, and so it was going to be him because that's how it was in our school. But then the, the whole thing was when Lindsay asks Eli to go to the the dance, it turns out you find out like the third act that the shop teacher's like, you know, really, you shouldn't do this. Are you doing this because you like this kid? Are you doing the, to prove a point? And it turns out he reveals that it's his son, um, which, you know, I thought was a really cool twist. But as Judd and, Judd and I were going through it, we realized eh, it's kind of soapy. You know, it, it felt a little soapy like those other shows. And so that's when we decided, oh, OK, let's 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 get rid of that. But yeah, it, it was funny. We just, you know, the Bible, which half of the Bible is out online. It's it, it passes around all the place. But my favorite part is the second half, which I don't think is out very much. I think it's out there somewhere. But that's where all the literally every song that who, who like what freaks like song I mean, down to close everything, because I just want to get all the details out because I'd seen so many shows about the 70s, high school and the 70s go off the rails because they were just cherry picking like the most cartoonish things, you know, like that 70s show I felt yeah, was very yeah. cartoony. It was funny. It was fun, but it was very cartoony yeah. as far as what the culture I grew up with. So I brought in all my yearbooks and all this stuff for the, you know, for the wardrobe department go like, look, we weren't wearing leisure suits. We weren't wearing platform shoes. This is how we dress, <laughs> you know, just, I just wanted to be really authentic. Um, but yeah, you know, but it was, it was a constantly moving target that we just wanted to hit because we always wanted to be honest. And you mentioned Eli there for a second. Um, like my route into the show was was kind of backwards. I, I you know I, I can't remember it airing. You know when I was when I was younger, I can't remember it airing in the UK. 
So I came into the show having experienced a lot of the comedy of the stars that the show birthed, so Seth and, and so on. So I came in not necessarily expecting the drama element of it. I remember mm. the first time I sat down and watched it, I was like, wow, this is tonally quite different from what I was expecting and, and all the richer yeah. for it. And Eli was very much at the heart of that. There is like in that first episode, like it is heartbreaking, kind of the bullying that we see him experience. Mm. Can you tell me about writing that character and, and the development that he went through? Yeah, I mean, that was honestly, I knew what I wanted the Sam story to be right off the bat. I knew I wanted him to want to take the, because it happened to me. I, I asked the head cheerleader who, who I was secretly in love with to the homecoming dance the day of the dance because I, <laughs> I was out of my mind. Um, so I was like, okay, that's my story and him with the dodgeball and all that stuff. That's really fun. But I was like, what is Lindsay's story? What is Lindsay's story? And I remember I was on an exercise bike out on this tour and just, Remember, you know, there was always a couple of, you know, uh, you know, handicapped kids in our school who were like ostracized because, you know, that age, um, you know, the people around them couldn't handle <laughs> handle stuff like that, especially back then. Um, and so I was just like, oh, what if she in an act of colossal act of fuck you to the school asked that kid to the dance, you know, and, and so that's really where it came from. Um but then, you know, I mean, he, he didn't change too much through from my first draft. What we did change, though, is obviously losing the thing about him being the, the auto shop teacher's uh, son. But then the whole that whole scene um, on the bleachers where the kids are kind of they're having fun with him, but they're making fun of him at the same time, but in a way that he doesn't quite get. And it's Lindsay. It was Judd and I really love this, that Lindsay comes in to defend him and says the wrong thing and sets him off. And then, yeah. you know, he runs away and breaks his arm, which we I will go to my grave saying like, that is the scene that got us canceled uh, because we, we, you know, we had this big premiere date and we got the most amazing reviews you've ever seen in your life. I mean, it was, it was really crazy, but not a great night. Saturday night at eight o'clock is not a great night, but still our numbers were really big. But if you look at the thing, the drop off at the, the end of the first half hour is so gigantic and it, cause it literally ends with Eli on the ground screaming in pain yeah, cause he broke yeah. his arm. And I think people are just like, ah, this, I can't, this is more than I can take. There must've been so many people over the course of the series airing. And then especially in, in the amazing afterlife the show has had who have come up to you and they have wanted to express how 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 seen they felt by the experience this is a lot closer to my high school experience than you know the majority of of high school shows like what what's that been like and was there a particular moment where you realized that this was resonating and that um you'd provided a kind of cathartic service for people well, we, I mean, when we were on, we were on the, for one of the first shows to have a really active um, website and, and message board. So of course, yeah. we really made a, a point of keeping up with the fans on, on online. So we knew we were hitting people, but the fact that we were a network show at a time when, you know, most shows drew 15 million, 20 million people that were, you know, hits or even middling hits you know, we were getting, we had a loyal audience of 7 million people every week, which today would be the one of the biggest shows on TV. But back then it made you the lowest rated show on television. So even though we knew we were reaching an audience that we liked, all you could see and all we were hearing about from the network is 
you guys aren't doing well. Nobody's watching the show, <laughs> you know? So it was very hard to go like, yeah, but we're really hitting our, our group because all you have dangling in front of you is like, you're, we're going to cancel you if you don't get your numbers. <laughs> um, so you just kind of didn't really know. So, you know, when the show got canceled, you know, it just felt like it was a, a giant failure, it, even though, I felt creatively really good about it. I, we never compromised anything. They, you know, had a couple of moments of like, you know, put Britney Spears on as a waitress. And it was like, okay, that seems, you know, now I kind of wish we had, but back then it seemed very pandering and like against what we were trying to do with very realistic characters and all that. Is that um, actually a suggestion? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah that almost so. happened. <laughs> oh, well, it didn't almost happen, but it was definitely a suggestion. That was somebody's big idea. And, you know, we, you know, back then we were whatever. <laughs> so highfalutin. Um, but yeah, so, so we had no, no clue, but in the years since, yeah, it's been great. The fact that it just keeps going, you know, I mean, it's been 22 years now. And the fact that people are still, you, that you and I are still talking about it. That's really heartening because that's what you always dream will happen with a TV show. But especially back in 99, when we did it, there was no afterlife for shows unless you went to syndication. There weren't the shows weren't even out on DVDs. So mm. it was basically like the minute you got canceled, it was this feeling of like, oh, my God, the show might as well not have existed because it's going to just be gone. Nobody's ever going to see it. But that's why Judd and I were fighting so hard to get it out on DVD. But it took four years and I kind of gave up on the fight and Judd kept fighting the fight because every place that wanted to do it didn't want to pay for the music. So they wanted to replace all the music with just score. We had this you know, international score that we did that was nothing. But I was like, I, I no, I'd rather not have it out there than to have it in this incomplete form because, you know, the songs were so integral to it. I mean, I would literally wrote scripts to the song, to the actual songs. Um, you know, but when, so when Shout Factory finally ponied up the dough four years later and put it out, it changed everything. And, you know, and they've made a ton of money off of that, which, you know, thank goodness, because it just kept it alive. I had completely forgotten how this was one of the the first shows that had that sort of online pickup. And that, yeah. of course, was back in the, the sort of sweet, earnest days of the Internet. <laughs> it, it must be crazy <laughs> for you, Paul, to have experienced that where you saw this community online kind of gathering around the show in a very positive way. And then decades later, Ghostbusters seemed the complete opposite of that. And them turn on me. Exactly. Oh no, I mean, gosh. I was such a baby because, you know, because I had this lovely relationship with the Internet ever since Freaks and Geeks. And it was always just, you know, people were just very positive. The shows I was on, people really liked, you know, The Office and the rest of development and then Bridesmaids and the heat and spy all that stuff so i just kind of like oh the in, like twitter especially was just my haven of like hey i'm having dinner i'm bored I'm by myself let's all talk and we have all these back and forth yeah and so then when it turned on ghostbusters it was like oh man you know it, it definitely kicked me out of the nest but but it's probably good that i mean you know you can't be that naive on <laughs> online anymore <laughs> but it, it really i really went through the fire because i felt like i was back in high school being bullied again and it, it, yeah. it triggered it was a real trigger for me and i i did didn't handle it well in the beginning. And that's why I caused more problems because I fired back at a couple of people. And as we now know, if you fire back at some of the internet, you are a villain and they are heroes, even though they're trolls. Yeah. I, mean, I don't want to dwell too long on it because A, I don't like giving oxygen to these people and B, I really <laughs> exactly. want to talk about spy, but um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I hope that you have realized over the years that like the reaction to that film was not necessarily about the film itself and was part oh, no, of a totally. wider sort of misogynistic movement that's kind of led to what we've seen in the last couple of weeks here in the US. You know, yeah. it's a, yeah. Yeah. No, it's ingrained. But but sadly, it's, yeah, no, I mean, it's now it's, you know, people just come up to me, you know, people still write 
shitty stuff on, online. But anybody who comes up to me, I get approached all the time by people like, it's my, you know, my kid's favorite movie. My son, it's, it's you, know, you, you know, so that you go know, like, okay, it's fine. That's what I love about movies and recorded medium in general is that they they exist and they always find their audience no matter you know what they are so that that's what's lovely about doing stuff like this so spy all these decades later was that a different writing experience uh a because of the time that had passed between the projects you had perhaps changed your your writing routine your writing ritual and and b because it was a movie is there a different approach that you take between those two different projects no, I mean, I, I always writing. So it was just like another one, another one. But I was when I was in post-production on the heat Skyfall, I think had just come out. And um, and so I was like, because I roll back the clock to when I did Uncompany Miners. That was right around when uh, Casino Royale came out, the first yeah. uh, Daniel Craig one. And I just loved that movie. That movie just blew my mind. Um, and so I was like, oh, if I can make a movie like that. So then we'll roll forward to Skyfall comes out. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do after the heat. And I was like, oh, I, yeah, I want to make a James Bond movie. I said this earlier, but, you know, I was like, but they're never going to let me do that. Oh, but I work with all these funny women let me just write my own and I can kind of do it my own way. And that was really just the, the impetus for it. And I went into Fox and said, I want to write a female James Bond. That's funny. And they're like, go ahead. Cause I had a deal there fortunately. And it was a new deal. So they were kind of <laughs> more open to stuff. And, um, but that was the moment when I went like, okay, this has to be about something. I can't just write, I'm not writing a spoof. I want to write a real spy movie, but it's gotta be funny, but it's gotta be about something I care about. That's when I said like, okay, this situation I just went through, through on the heat where I was having so much angst about not working with Judd. How can I make that, put that into the character? But the interesting thing about Spy was that I I tend, I go back and forth when I write. Um, you know, I've written a couple of things based on books now, uh, adaptations. And that's fun because then at least, you know, the framework is there that you can either improve on or change or whatever. But the things from scratch, I tended to do, I outline pretty heavily and get the cards out and get all, you know, so I really have it outlined heavily. This one I knew the character, I knew what I wanted the ending to be, and I knew that the journey just had to mirror kind of what a spy movie does. And I just said, I'm just gonna start writing it and see what happens. So this is one of the few times, and I don't recommend this because I've hit so many scripts that have hit the rocks halfway through because I don't know where I'm going. But I was just like, let's try it. And it just, one just caught, just caught my head. And I was just able to keep it going and just had a lot of ideas based on, things that I'd seen in so many other James Bond movies and other spy movies in general that I was like, Oh, I can, let's, let's, you always think this is going to happen. Let's flip it and have it go this way. And, you know, so, you know, things like, you know, her first kill and it's so upsetting. I'm like, what would I do if I actually killed somebody? Oh my God, I would throw up. Immediately. Well, everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was those kind of things that propelled me forward. And, and also just the whole, you know, the inner life of the character going like, I have to prove myself, what if I was, you know, in the same boat that I was doing the heat where I had so much angst for the first few weeks of shooting because like, I don't anybody, you know, I, I don't, there's nobody overlooking me to, to go like, that's really good. Um, yeah. So that combined with, with the events of a spy movie just made it go forward. And I wrote that script like in about four weeks, the first draft, it kind of poured wow. out of me, which, which is kind of how freaks and geeks happened too. freaks and geeks was, I wrote as a spec and just, it, I wrote that in like two weeks. It just poured out of me. So that's, I always know. And that's the hard thing with writing for me now is if an idea doesn't catch on right away and it doesn't become really fluid like that, I, you know, I'll either try to keep it alive. And sometimes I, I have, 
But other times I've, I've got like two ideas that I've been working on for like four years. I'm like, just throw them out because you're, you're, they're not flowing out of you. Get rid of them. But then in your moments of weakness, you're like, oh, but I know I can, I know I can solve it. Um, you know, so it becomes a little bit, a bit of that, but no, a spy was a real, real fun script to write. And, and I really, you know, I really enjoyed doing that and, and it seemed to work out pretty well. So what did that draft look like that, uh, you know, you smashed out in four weeks? How different was that to, to the finished film? If you had the destination, I'm guessing the ending was pretty similar. What, what was different about the rest of the script? It was not terribly different, to be honest. I mean, it was some of the machinations of, you know, it was different, set in different places. It was set in like Venice and Capri and, and you know, in, in Paris, which it eventually, you know, we went through Paris on it. But um it was the, but it didn't change too much, honestly. There was more just kind of hijinks based on location. You know, in Venice, there's all this stuff with the gondolas and, you know, yeah. and, and just how, how you know, uh, Rick Ford's always on a speedboat and she's, you know, always walking in on the Vaparado and all this stuff. So, but it didn't, honestly, I mean, it was pretty close. Um, you know, things got added as we went along and, you know, and Katie Dippold who had written the heat, she, she, she helped me out with some ideas and stuff and came up with, she gave up some really funny ideas like the, um, you know, the whole getting, getting the uh, secret weapons. Cause she was like, you gotta have a cue scene in here. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So that's where the one where Michael McDonald's keeps giving her terrible, terrible props, you know, but it's fun because that, again, that world is so fun because you go like, here's what the, here's the scene that always comes up. So what's our shitty version of that scene that Susan Cooper would be shafted to she doesn't get the cool stuff that you know the jude law gets she gets the you know then the you know the middle-aged woman who is completely undervalued you know who has to go undercover stuff can you tell me about the elasticity that you leave in the script for improv because you know i think like obviously improv is in comedy is somewhat overstated like these are carefully crafted lines and everything's you know i think there's a cultural sense that everything's improv when of course it's not but yeah. you clearly do leave room in these in these scripts for uh, you know things to change on set and and actors just to kind of be able to work through spontaneous things that come into their heads. What's yeah. your process for that? Well, yeah, I mean, you always make it the greatest script you can possibly make, but then you know when you get there, you want to be free with it. Um, you know, that's that, that, like the, the Ghostbusters haters always like, you know, it's all just improv. It's like, yeah, it's not just improv. <laughs> you know, that just a, 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 assumes that we showed up and just uh, whatever you want to do. No, it's got to be very, very scripted because either if on the day nobody's creative, you got to have the thing. And also B, it's got to, you know, it's a blueprint. It has to, you have, the emotions have to track and all that stuff has to track. But I'm less concerned about punchlines, you know, about I wrote this joke and you got to hit this joke. It's like, Sure, let's get the joke I wrote, but then I've got more ideas. You've got ideas, you know, the actors, let's have them do it. And I'll usually have somebody on set with me who's also really funny, who just will write jokes and hand them in. And so I just want to get as many as I can. So when I get into the test screening process, I've got 10 jokes to back up the one I thought was going to work. And then we, you know, put up the test screening and it doesn't work. You're like, all right, throw that joke out. Try this one, try this one, try this one. You know, so it's really the most... I wouldn't say improv, it's more kind of ad-libbing that happens is, or changes that happen are for specific jokes and lines. Um, we very rarely, I can't even tell you when I've ever gone like, let's just freeform the scene. Like it, it just wouldn't work, you know? <laughs> I mean, Bridesmaids was, you know, 
it, it was kind of the, the, the scene with with um, and Melissa and, and Kristen on the couch when Melissa kind of reads of the riot act. That was a lot of we had, we knew we wanted her to read her the riot act. But then the way that Melissa did it on the day, she was, you know, there was a lot of stuff she stuck to that was written. But then she was throwing stuff in, you know, about you know, having all the, all this money and, you know, like, you know, being a, a spy. And, you know, that was all this weird stuff that some of it came out of improv sessions when we were doing the rewrites, you know, and, and just developing the script. And then it was other stuff that she did on the set. You know, but that's stuff I like because then it's alive in the moment. It's tracking. I'm not going to use anything that doesn't make sense to the story and subverts the characters. You, I always say you have to be secure enough. To, you have to be confident enough to not be confident, um, you know, to not be go like this joke kills. Don't you dare change it. Don't you know, it's like, no, I sure. Let's try mine. But I don't know. Your joke might be better than mine because. I mean, to tell you, 80% of the time you get the editing room, the joke I thought somebody did that was terrible ends up in the movie because you're like, oh, that it, I just thought it was terrible at the time because it wasn't the thing I had in my head, but it's actually more organic to what they were doing. So you just have to be open. I mean, I, I absolutely love the film. I love Statham especially. And I think I also love the, um, you know, there's a, there's a tightrope walk that it performs. Like it's, it's not a spoof, as you mentioned earlier. Like it, it there's this sort of, unwritten kind of contract with the audience we recognize what the sort of genre demands of a spy film are but yeah it stands up on its own it's a spy film that's funny rather than a spy parody i think yeah and, yeah uh, well i i always bristles people sometimes refer to it as a spy spoof as i, I don't do spoofs i don't like spoofs <laughs> you know <laughs> it, it's i like genres and that's if you notice all the movies i just i'm just doing different genres because i'd like to go into a genre that has a set of rules and tropes and go like oh now how do we twist those because that's a good source of comedy to, to you know subvert but but i always make sure to be religious first and foremost to the genre you know because i never want to do the thing like i i love you know sci-fi and i always hate when like oh it's gonna be a funny sci-fi and it's like oh no it's just a, it's just making fun of sci-fi like that's not fun for me i, I did a i created a show called uh, other space that was on yeah, Yahoo's yeah. short-lived let yahoo screen but that to me was like i want to do funny sci-fi i don't want to make sci-fi that is making fun of sci-fi and so you know that's the goal is just be true don't look down on anything you're doing it has to do with the characters if you you know actors that are playing characters that they have contempt for or or are making fun of i have no interest in you know there's certain performances from comedy actors i go like okay you don't like that character you're you're just making fun of that character so that you and i can laugh at it and I don't like that. I, I like when you when somebody inhabits a character and it becomes a very real character for them, even though it's a wacky or a nutty or completely <laughs> over the top extreme character. If I believe them, it's like the people I know in my life who are nuts, who but you go like they're really nuts. But that's what's so fun about them. They're not people like I'm going to act like I'm crazy now. You know, and I'm going to I'm going to be outrageous just to shock everybody. I have no interest in that versus the person who is actually shocking because they don't realize they're being shocking that <laughs> then that's fun i don't necessarily want to hang out with them in real life but i want to see them in a movie and when you get to the end of a project like spy or or indeed freaks and geeks these these projects that do come from a personal place and from a personal anxiety do you feel like you've worked through something like you know getting spy out there and it being the success that it was having come from a place of like um uncertainty that you know you could step out on your own without judd did yeah did, what, what's this sort of sense of catharsis at the end of these projects and is that why well, you do it Paul? well i mean it, it's great the funny thing is you never 
you're never allowed, <laughs> you never allow yourself, I should say, to enjoy it. Um, <laughs> because immediately you're like, oh, like if something works, it's great. But then you're like, oh, how am I going to top that? <laughs> you know, so that that's a, a stomach ache. Um, or if it doesn't do well, then of course, obviously you beat yourself up because like, oh God, what did I do wrong? So, but there, I think the only moment, great moments are when you like finish, you know, like when you walk away from the final sound mix and the movie's locked and it hasn't come out yet. And you're like, oh man, like, oh, I finished it. And I'm really happy with it. I wonder what's going to happen. You know, I, I guess Bridesmaids was, was a real, probably the most cathartic moment I had because everybody's predicting the movie wasn't going to do well, you know, yeah. and I, and I really looked at it as my third strike because my two previous movies, I am David and unaccompanied minors bombed. So it was kind of like, okay, you know, I, it's amazing. I got a third chance, but if this one doesn't work, then it, it's over. And so hearing that over and over again, even the day we were coming out of like, it's, you're not going to make your money back. You know, you're, this is a, a failure. And then to be sitting around that night with Melissa McCarthy and Ben Falcone, her husband. Um, and suddenly the texts text start coming in of like, actually you're doing really well, you know, and we went to the theater and walked into the theater and the place was packed and rocking. That was probably the most, most satisfied I ever was of like, oh, wow, it actually worked. And like few, it's never, you're never happy more than you're just like, oh, thank God, you're just relieved, you know, <laughs> and then you usually get sick, you know, because your body just like lets go and it's like whatever porous hole you have, germs come in and then you're like laid up. You know, I got, remember right after we finished shooting the heat, I got like shingles because I was so relieved that we got through it. So, <laughs> so you never enjoy anything because you're just so terrified of getting drummed out of the business on the next project you mentioned how like uh you know genre is kind of one of your north stars and how like you know you you sort of jump between genres looking for ways to kind of subvert it and that that is sometimes the starting point for these projects mm-hmm. looking forward having um achieved what you've achieved having made films that almost kind of caused an international incident in my mom's school and uh <laughs> <laughs> not my fault <laughs> not your fault that's on me but yeah man what's when you look to the future like what are the things that you haven't ticked off yet that um that you'd love to yeah uh so a musical definitely music i'm desperate to make a musical oh, really? i want to be an original musical yeah um that's big and splashy and means a lot to a lot of people you know <laughs> that's a goal we've been trying to develop a few in my company it, they're just hard they're really hard to get right uh but that i want to do a big sci-fi epic uh that's fun you know um I'd like to do a Western someday. Again, I, I just, I'm just looking at the genre, horror movie. I'm desperate to do a horror movie, but like, you know, a fun horror movie. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many boxes to check still. Um, I like doing thrillers. I had a lot of fun doing a simple favor and uh, we have a few other kind of thriller ish uh, projects in, in our, in development, in our company, but they all have to come from a, a fun place. Sounds trite, but a, a way that I can make them fun even though they're true to the genres, you know, and it usually comes from who the lead character is, you know, is it, that, that's why I, simple favor. I love because Anna Kendrick's character, you know, that character of, of Stephanie was just funny to me because she was such a nerd who got stuck in this terrible situation. Like I could relate to that. Like what would happen to me if I suddenly got swept up in this <laughs> you know, crazy situation trying to solve a murder? Um, you know, so, so that's really uh, what I look for, but yeah, I, I mean, the sky's the limit. I just want to keep doing stuff. I haven't done, you know, my new movie, uh, the school for good and evil is a big fantasy movie, which I've never done before. And uh, I've just had the best time doing it. I mean, yeah, that's, that's one of the projects that's on the slate as we speak today, you're kind of in the, in the final mix. I think you, you yeah, mentioned. Final mix, yeah. 
so what can you tell me about that and sort of some of the other projects that are coming up in the immediate future? Like Spy 2, I think, was announced. Is that still on the cards, Paul? No, that, that's some IMDb weird thing. Uh, <laughs> right, stuff okay. pops up and you're like, oh, am I doing that? I didn't have, <laughs> nobody told me. Um, no, I mean, yeah, I always hold out hope that we could do another one. I think it'd be fun. And I have an idea for what the story would be. And I think it's really funny um, and, and real. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, School for Good and Evil is, is coming out. And that's all I've been able to see, really. Um, but, you know, hopefully we'll be making another one of those because it's a series of books. And I really love this world we created. Um, there's a chance we'll be doing a, a second simple favor. Um, we're kind of working that out right now. So that could happen. Um, and then there's kind of other, yeah, a lot of other projects based some on books, some on original ideas um, that are in development at a company. And, you know, not a lot I can talk about at the, at the time, but um at the moment. But no, really, I, really fun stuff. And that's always trying to find what's different that can still feel like one of my movies, but still surprise you. Cause you go like, Oh, I didn't think he was going to make that. So you want, you want to surprise people, but not surprise them so much that they go like, Oh, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to see you do that. So, but that's, that's the risk you take when you take on genres. Well, Paul, this has been so much fun. I should let you go and uh, get your evening sorted, as I believe you yes. now say. Now you're an official Londoner. Um, it is true. No, well, actually, I have to get on a, on a meeting with a with a writer, so it never stops. It's always, it never stops, man. Exactly. <laughs> well, thank well, you thanks. so much. I, I can't wait to see all these upcoming projects. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for coming on Script Apart. It's been an absolute blast chatting with you, Paul. My pleasure. I hope I didn't talk too much, but <laughs> thanks so much, and thanks for listening, everybody. And thank you, Al. I really appreciate you having me on. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.